Hello, and welcome to the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. I'm your host, Larry Witzel. Seventh-day Adventist churches grow differently, and our goal with this podcast is to offer practical training for effective evangelism in the Adventist ministry context. Registration is now open for the 2024 Propel Conference, coming back to Vancouver, Washington, April 28 to May 1. We've got some amazing speakers lined up, like uh, Dr. Jesse Wilson, Dr. Hiram Rester, Byron Corbett, and Bill McClendon, the North Pacific Union Conference President John Friedman is going to be there, along with tons of other speakers. This year, we're going to have a special emphasis on innovation uh, with training tracks on digital evangelism and evangelistic innovation. But even with all this talk about innovation, we're going to stay focused on effectiveness, hearing from ministry professionals who are actually seeing numerical kingdom growth in their churches. Early bird pricing ends in just two weeks on March 20. And you can see all the details and register to attend on our website, propelconference.org. So please plan to join us April 28 to May 1, 2024 for our next Propel Conference on church growth. Our speakers for this episode of the Propel Podcast are Cindy Chamberlain Eastwood and Ted Vanderlyn from the Hope of Survivors, a nonprofit dedicated to support, hope, and healing for victims of clergy sexual abuse. Cindy's the president of the Hope of Survivors, and Ted is vice president and chair emeritus. In this presentation, Cindy and Ted discuss the importance of addressing clergy sexual abuse within the church and the need for prevention and education. Uh, They share their experiences with the Hope of Survivors. Uh, This is an advocacy and education group for victims and families of clergy sexual abuse. They discuss the challenges of implementing change in your church, the importance of apologies and accountability, uh, as well as the impact of abuse on survivors and the need for cultural shifts within the church. Uh, They also talk about the importance of boundaries, education, and creating a culture of safety and accountability. Uh, Frankly, this is a hard topic, but it is so important to be aware of these issues and to take steps in your church to make it a safe space for the most vulnerable among us. So we're going to hear from Cindy and Ted in just a moment. First, though, I want to mention the sponsor of this episode, Pacific Press, the official publishing house of the North American Division. As a great outreach opportunity, Pacific Press partners with thousands of churches on the front lines of ministry through sharing materials that capture people's interest in faith topics. Printed products include subjects on living a Christ-centered life, prophetic fulfillment and end-time events, Adventist doctrinal elaboration, and faith-building stories. Pacific Press also publishes a monthly magazine called Signs of the Times, devoted to spreading the word of God and the news of his second coming. Uh, This magazine's been in continuous circulation since 1874. It's been 150 years. They also have a Spanish edition, El Centinela, uh, along with many other periodicals, including weekly children's magazines like Our Little Friend, Primary Treasure, and Guide. And there's a Healthy Living magazine, Vibrant Life, as well. You can explore all the Pacific Press products at AdventistBookCenter.com or at an Adventist Book Center store near you. Okay, let's get to the presentation for this episode. Here is Cindy Chamberlain Eastwood and Ted Vanderlyn with their breakout session at the 2023 Propel Conference, Making Church a Safe Space. People don't just come to our booth and take a brochure they come and they first say, what is this? And then we say, it's an advocacy and education group for victims and families of clergy sexual abuse. And inevitably their jaw drops. Proverbially or otherwise. It's the first time they've heard that often in a foyer and then Something happens. There's a paradigm shift where they just look at us like, are you safe? And we hear a story about a loved one that's very close to them and resonating with them and still painful three generations later. And then I said to Ted and Diane, I said, you know, I know some of these faces from camp meetings and things. And as Adventists, we're often so squeaky clean in our diet, our dress, and our entertainment. 
but I would have never thought as a child seeing these faces that there were this many stories. So it just gave me courage to continue those costs because it's real and the pain is there. Yeah, and it's so, it's so moving to us the, the sadness that is that that this kind of behavior has created um, that that we just feel compelled to be be part of the solution and so you know it's a it's it's a two part solution right you've got to take care of the people that have been hurt um, but then if you're going to if you're going to really be serious about it you've also got to talk about how you're going to pre- prevent it and the FOS has been more, most, well, I would say probably 75% focused on counseling and, and getting legal advice for the people that have been victims. But we're really going to be doing some shifting into the education and the preventative uh, more than even we have in the past. So this is a, that's a, that's a great question. And we may be getting way ahead of ourselves, and this conversation might go like this. So bear with us, because it's, it's really is a great question. Often, the predator is so good, and they're, high, they're so highly thought of in the church that they're not going to be that sleazy-looking person that walks in the back of the church that hasn't showered for three days with you know half of their shirt tail out of their, they're not going to be that person. So identifying it could be nearly impossible because those people we know, it's like, eh, would somebody have a, have a conversation with a guy that just came in? No, they will be people that are, are recognized, that are authority figures, that are um, well-loved. And so, you know, we talk about how, so how, how can you do that? How can you look at look at a group of people and say, and in most ways you can't. So you have to give people opportunities to come forward. And that's, that's you know, I've thought about, you know, like what, what would it be like if, you know, you know, I saw, listen to Richie Halverson and how amazing of a speaker and how powerful he is. And imagine a voice like that standing up in front of a, a a full house congregation saying, hey, I'm going to talk to you guys about something that's tough. And that's clergy sex abuse and, and, and church leadership sex abuse. And talk about that a little bit and say, if that is happening in this church to any of you, you have a safe place to come, to have a conversation. And you will be kept confidential and you will be kept safe. And to have that conversation every quarter. Because the first time somebody that's being abused hears that, they're going to be, yeah, right. And they just keep in that pattern. The second time, maybe they'll be like, they might be serious about this. And maybe the third time, somebody, you know, a kid or a person that's being abused would actually say, listen, I need to talk to you. So we have to create a culture of, of not on our watch. Um, And we also have to have these conversations with church leadership and say, say, listen, you know, now we're in a workers meeting. It's like, y'all, here's some things that you need to look at. Here's the thing. Don't put yourself in this position. Um, And if these things are happening, you need to come and talk to me because if it goes to the level of being abuse, we will take you by the ear. We will take you to the police station. We will turn you over, and you will never sit behind a pulpit again. Now, do we have the guts to do that as a church? Clearly not, because we haven't. This is 2023, and it's still going on. But that's, the, that's you know, you'd have to change the culture in the church in order, I think, for people to come, to be willing to come forward. And it has to be consistent. And, you know, often it's kids that are, that are being victimized, you know, like people that are teenagers, um, like late teens. You know, they just don't have the experience to be able to know how to deal with that. 
So I think there's a cultural shift that has to happen. Well, you know, the, the, the old uh, rule of thumb was don't apologize for anything because that's an admission of guilt. And if you admit guilt, that becomes evidence. And then, you know, you're on the witness stand and somebody says, well, you say you didn't do anything, but in fact, sir, didn't you apologize for this thing? Oh, really? Have you apologized? Why did you apologize? You must have done something. So suddenly you're, you're sweating on the witness stand and you're like, well, I guess I'm never going to apologize again. So that for years and years, that was the, that was the rule of thumb that was always telling. If you make a mistake in healthcare, um, you don't apologize. And escalation went up. So about 15 years ago, there's groups of, of healthcare, uh, groups of doctors that said, we're going to try something different. And they started to apologize. And lawsuits went plummeted down because that's really almost all people want. It's like, yeah, we get that. And so, you know, I think that, that Adventist risk management is still in that old school of, hey, we've got to do everything we can to, to, to keep this out of court. We can't apologize. We can't really have an honest conversation with victims. And I've been in meetings with conference officials and victims, and the, the hedging that goes on in those conversations, I was just, it was just astounding. We feel like if we, if we can have these conversations with people at high enough levels that will, and maybe, you know, even with risk management folks, and, you know, give the comparison that they, people may listen and could turn, you know, turn the tide on that. And there has been movement, um, not enough, not, not significant enough, but when a, a minor receives sexual predation, victimization in a school of ours now, they are granted um, paid counseling by the conference. And it's something like four or five sessions. And I've heard the legal team's uh, remark that actually they thought it's a benefit because their litigation went down with those and the health of the victim went up. And the maintaining of that minor in our church, um, uh, keeping them in church goes up as well. Because even if they're hurt in one of our schools, the memory to the victim is that someone did care enough to make sure it was heard initially. So I think I think this would be a really good strategy of our board to try and meet with GC administration, try and get that implemented, this plan, because... We do know that the little strides that have been made do help incrementally, but there's not enough at this point. And we always want to come alongside and support our church. This is, is known as a supportive ministry, um, and that is amazing. Now, I'm going to be truthful, though. They're, we're light years behind, and they are victims are asked to sign NDAs in California Two years ago, that was outlawed legally, so that even if a victim signs an NDA, it's not binding. non-binding, a non-disclosure agreement. Oh, indeed. So the way yeah. it would go is effectively they were paid and then had to sign an initially a gag order, and those are no longer honored in the state of California, so they will not be honored. And I think with this particular type of dysfunction, I think that's a, a really good legal precedent because I think that the victim needs to be able to be free to discuss their story. Um, and so there is movement that way. Again, we want to be really affirming to our church, but we also want to be very account, make them very much accountable. Yes. So there's movement there. But it's, it's usually a really traumatic experience for a victim. It means five or six years of their life continually being tested for baseline health against what the, um, the causation was and what the injury was. It, it means telling their story repeatedly to mental health care providers. It means a battery of, of um, screenings. And by then, the legal statute limitations have run out. Um, they may have lost trust and, and um, 
reputation and different things. They may have lost jobs. They may have split the church by then. You know, there's so many things that factor in. And we'll go into a few more stats on that of why victims usually are not making it up. So. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, and as I was thinking about it, you know, the, the name of our organization, the Hope of Survivors, you know, you have this picture of, you know, taking care of people that are survivors. And years ago, I, I read one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's books, really hard to read because he was so smart and they're so like up here intellectually. Um, but he had a quote that, and do you know, do you guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Yeah. Um, you know, and so he says, if you sit next to a madman and he, he drives the car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe, then, confront, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. You know, so that's the, the bipartite role that we have on the, on the other side of the victims. Because uh, if we're not going to do that, I mean, it's great to be a healthcare provider, um, but to just stop the madness is, um, you know, and then I found another one as I was looking up, because I knew I had heard, had read one of those before I put it in. So then I found another one. It's like, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And we added one more to that. And I can't remember not what it was. Decision is a decision. Yeah, to not make a decision is a, is a decision. And there's a, a classic example why that's true. I know of a church in California that they made a decision not to reinvest anything in, in um, children's ministry. They decided not to grow any type of Sabbath school, vacation Bible school, pathfinders, and now, guess what? Ten years later, they have no children. So them not deciding to grow something was, in fact, a clear decision. And it became a decision just by a non-decision. So non-decisions are very much decisions. So what is abuse? Um, and I heard this. I was being interviewed on a radio program recently, and the host used this quote, and I loved it. Wherever power is used in a way that wounds the vulnerable for the exposed trust, abuse has So why thirst at Propel? This is about church growth. Why thirst at Propel? Can you grow a church that's dysfunctional? Is that a church you want to be at all the time? So what I did, I, was, I found this. It's 15 signs of a dying church and what to do about it. And it was an April 13, 2022 article. And it was giving 15 traits of, of um, a dying church. So let's just, you start with one. We'll, have, we'll just have you read them. Janice, you want to read the first, then we'll go to the next person, read the second, and we'll just read these together. Have impact. Okay? Unhealthy prayer culture. Decreasing attendance. They can't find the baptismal tank. Where did we put it? Tithes are decreasing. Decreasing. Lack of disciple-making. Church isn't serving others. Oops. Janice, you want to read that? Community involvement is missing. Oops. Pain is resisted. <laughs> it's a surprise. Relationship with God is struggling. Do you think? <laughs> Congregation is preference driven. They're on wins, right? Yeah. Affirmation from people versus God. Mm. Yeah. Your budget is focused inwardly. Okay, so we know that that is the dangers of a dying church. Uh, dangers that present from a crisis. Let's go read those. I thought it was kind of fun. Generational damage, and I mean generations. Breaks up churches, breaks up families, usually halts growth, 
can entrench dysfunction. Have you ever seen a church? You just said, oh, that church has always been like that. Forms unhealthy patterns and causes victim alienation. The good news actually is that if your church can handle a crisis well, you can come out the other side stronger. It's like a business that has to work to the bring up their bottom line, or it's like a marriage that has to fight for existence. If you come out of it with the redemptive, godly responses, you can come out stronger. Yeah, in fact, crises often are what make us stronger. If we're willing to, if we're like personally, organizationally, and including churches, you go through a crisis and you go through it together, and you go through through it with with that purpose and with love. You can be much stronger on the other side. Learn about healthy patterns and boundaries together. That's the opportunity that can occur. The church can learn about healthy patterns and boundaries together. Not yeah. avoid the boundaries, not avoid the patterns, but they can learn to navigate those patterns and boundaries together. You know, and if that becomes part of the culture, like we talked about earlier, it's like if you talk about those boundaries and you talk about that and it becomes part of the com- the web of conversation inside of a church, everybody's on the same page. Um, and if you all are holding each other, if we all are holding each other accountable, you know, our brother can say, he can come to me and say, you just may want to think about how you put your hand on that woman's shoulder. It just doesn't look great. You may not be intending that, but, you know, so if I have given him like that permission and we have a relationship and I'm like, hey, if you see something that doesn't look right in me, you have my permission to tell me. So you build that culture. And, you know, then I can't, then I can't be like, well, what a jerk. How dare you? It would be like, yeah, I gave you permission to do that. I get that. I get how that looks. I think that's, that's valid because then you, you're able to be more accountable mm-hmm. with each other. Um, I think as Adventists, too, I just want to inject here. I've noticed something in our culture, and I don't know if it's because we all do haystacks together on Friday night, and we all have been to the same college, and we've all, you know, have a potluck, but we have a really hard time with boundaries. And sometimes that's good because we're family, and we are needing to just be close. And then other times it's really hard to explain. No, you can't just crash that wedding that wedding has an rsvp list or you can't just arrive without reservations and i've noticed in our culture there is sort of a tendency to just get really kind of sloppy about boundaries and i don't know why but i've noticed that even in an event event planning and things we just have a real hard time with with boundaries but this is an opportunity to grow that well and to your and to your point, I mean, that just brought something to mind that, you know, we'll have Bible studies all day long, right? But we won't have human engagement studies, right? We won't have we won't have discussions about the psychology of being together as as groups of human beings because, well, it's psychology and it's not, certainly not it's not the Bible, <laughs> and. Um, and that really is, it's to, it's to our detriment that we don't do that. Because, you know, if, if we believe that we're created in the image of God, the study of who people are and how they engage with each other is understanding better the nature of God. Um, now, you may not subscribe to the Freudian theories and some of those other theories, and that's fine. You don't have to. There's a much, there's much, there's incredible research out there now that that surpasses that by far but that's so important so that like there, there may be people that just have never even thought of that i'm very surprised at what people pass off as christian brotherly sisterly love and i've heard story after story 
even from old ladies that say, you know, I was just sitting at the piano and suddenly his hand was on the back of my neck or, you know, it's just gross. And like even in social media, I'm, I'm shocked at um, all the hearts, people that like everything on social media with all the hearts and you've got single women hearting everything, you know, oh, you're in the ditch. There's a heart, you know, whatever. You know, it, it, I think it's worth looking who, who are the greatest perpetrators of clergy sex abuse? Exactly. Hmm? Pathfinder leaders, camp counselors, male camp counselors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so how, how do we get us in the rooms to talk about this? You know, in seminary, I think I told you, in seminary, they talk about it for about 10 minutes. Yeah, so there's no, there's no course, uh, law and ethics of, of pastoring. Right, right. Yeah, like rules. Yeah, it's like rules of engagement. And I tell, my, I, I tell people that work for me and instructors that counsel students, I say, do not counsel a student behind a closed door. I don't care what gender it is. And more so goes to the pastor. It's like, you can counsel you can counsel people of the opposite gender, but you should have a, a, a woman elder or somebody that's trustworthy in that room with you so that there's no question about, about what's happening. Um, what's that? For your protection. Exactly. Oh, having written um, church crisis press releases for multiple years, the ones that I have dealt with were always in two categories. And I don't know if this is representative of, of every conference, but the ones that I dealt with were two. One was they came out of Pathfinders, or two, they came out of very poorly trained pastors. And um, the ones that went on the correct um, ordination track and went to Andrews got their doctorate, learned the Greek and Hebrew, did everything, took extra classes in human nature and different seminars. I never saw those indiscretions come through my desk with those crisis releases. I always saw them for very poorly trained pastors that had come through another track and someone thought they should be ordained, they're really great. And um, they hadn't been properly vetted for red flags. They hadn't properly been vetted for what to look for, how to, how to work and navigate a crisis. And then, of course, the other one came through the Pathfinders. And this is probably a really gross overstatement, but I think with Pathfinders, it's you either have people that, are, that love kids so much and they would give their kidney for those kids and they'll do everything. They'll document, they'll paperwork, they'll life scan. And they love those kids and they follow them and those kids get married, they go to their weddings, they meet their babies. Or you've salted the earth people or you have perpetrators that want to perform that. That's kind of what I've seen. You either have really, the really good mm-hmm. or someone that's there to take advantage. And that's just what I've seen. I don't know how that bears with the stats. But that's, that's the same with the sec- secular children's organizations also. Either, like Boys you said, they're either, club. yes, all yeah. of those, it's the same Boy Scouts. Either the people really love children, want to do everything mm-hmm. they can for them, or they're there because they're predators. Yeah. So I think that, to me, it reminds me of Proverbs where it says, my people die for lack of wisdom. So I think that the onus is on really good training and grooming for pastors to really know what they're dealing with, the red flags and things, and then of course the vigilance in our in our pathfinders in our schools. Yeah. Because we need to demystify it. So I'm not advocating this at all. But like the FLDS polygamy people finally decided they wanted to to demystify their lifestyle. Not agreeing with that lifestyle, but they went on reality TV and said, "This is who we are," and then they legislated to take it out of um, felony status and to put it into misdemeanor status, and they tried to normalize it again, not making a value statement. But I think that victim survivors slink off 
And this is where we have to have faith. These are real people that are not freaks from something. Mm-hmm. They're real people. They slink off and they suffer the rest of their lives. And their families suffer. And any children they have suffer. Yeah. So what, what often what often happens, and this is why this is why there was actually a change in the law with the statute of limitations. What often happens is they, they slink off, they suppress, and they're like, it's over, it's not happening anymore, I've dealt with it. And they get older, and they get older, and they have a kid. They get married, they have a kid. Um, or they don't get married, and they have a kid. And, you know, life goes on until there's some thing that happens, and they s- snap. And they don't know why they snap. They go, you know, spend time in front of a, you know, with a therapist and a counselor and and it comes out and they're like, oh my gosh, I just remembered that. And and this have this happened a lot uh, with boys that were abused in the Catholic Church when they, they're there like 30 years later and they snap. And so because there was such a a large number of them that came forward with with uh, psychologist backing, they finally changed the law that says, okay, two years is the statute of limitations from the time that you were injured or should or knew about or should have known of the damage from that event. So that allowed those long cases, uh, those cases with with a long history to come back to court, which is why you saw so much of it in, in the Catholic Church. Well, it used to be, even when I grew up, because I know my sister was molested when she was two years old by someone who's considered to be a close family friend. And my sister suffered her life with mental, her entire mental life. I mean, adult life, all the way through with mental problems. And I would say it all the way back to that. Because she remembered that. She remembered the pain of it and the embarrassment because the family said, Shh, no, no, no. Oh. Yeah, it's real. It's real. And I see you kind of even tearing up today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. I'm fascinated with why churches blame the victim. I'm fascinated why pastors get that pass. What do pastors say when they're confronted? So when I was getting ready for the interview, the radio interview, I just buried myself in my office for a good 20, 30 hours, and I read everything I could find on that and why they get that pass. And aside from the fact that they have the microphone and they have the platform, uh, and the victim usually doesn't have those things. And that's very terrifying. That is very terrifying. I think... Losing one's voice, proverbially, is the scariest thing that you can go through. Losing your voice is the most alarming thing. And what I did find is that it can vary. Um, they, what, if, what happens when the clergy role is torn? <coughs> so the, the clergy role is one of trust, and when that gets torn, it can, it can go different ways. They, it can change and alter the congregation but one thing it seems to be built on a lot of different factors how likable is the pastor how credible is the victim how much history does the congregation have with each one what um what are the strengths of a congregation what are the uh, skills the congregation has what resources do the congregation have? How smooth is the pastor in his approach? How good is he at manipulating? How much strength does the victim have? There's a whole bunch of different things. If they do admit it, it they have very little regard to the severity. So if you get any kind, if you get any kind of an apology or an admittance, it's usually very minimizing. Very minimizing. And that would be, well, I didn't mean it like that. Or you misconstrued that. You mistook what I said. Or complete denial. Or gaslighting. 
where the terms are always changing. The terms, the semantics, and I, and I always say when semantics are an issue, there's an issue. You're right? Think Bill Clinton. When semantics are an issue, there's an issue, right? The terms are always being reinvented. And that's crazy making, of course, right? And to anyone. And then manipulation. Out and out manipulation. Maybe strategically keeping the victim's family quiet, keeping them from talking, the, the manipulation. And if you have the platform and you have the microphone, you control the narrative. Then, of course, victim blaming. So the actual term, the victim blaming, they made me do it. It was what they wore, what they said. Um, spiritual and threats. And then spiritual or therapeutic rationalizations. Now, this is where it gets nuanced and cloaked in church terms. Like, it's, it is, I think it's almost worse than if you were assaulted by a Harley Davidson driver down the road because now you've got a group of people and a leader that can couch it in spiritual terms. We'll pray for you. This is very sad, but we'll, we'll pray for brother so that's sick. It's a sanitization. Yeah. yeah. And it almost, I think, did, almost minimizes it more because it puts it in spiritual <clears throat> tone. Um, the other thing is no, no action is taken, but promises are given. We're looking into it. We're looking into it. So a lot of, a lot of what I would write for crises for the conference would be we're looking into it, we're cooperating with the authorities, and we will soon have answers. Knowing that we wouldn't have any of them. But it kept the media happy. And it usually keeps the congregation happy. So what causes the delay? Meaning like, okay, so if there's an issue with the pastor, then do you then, so it's hard to go to the pastor because the pastor is in charge of the church. Right. So then are you going to the conference? And then what happens there? Like, I'm trying to understand. They, they have mandated report. They have a certain amount of time to report it. But initially what can happen is there's going to be a whole lot of bottlenecking before it's ever brought to a mandated reporter. And it can be squelched down so that the victim is not ever going to take it to that level to a legal charge or anything like that. So I can be a, 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 just to underscore that and to maybe add some color to it. I, I believe that often it's done to get enough time to pass so that the statute of limitations is no longer available. So they'd be like, oh yeah, sister so-and-so, we, we understand, we're praying for you, we're going to set up a meeting, and then the meeting happens in one or two weeks, and it's a local meeting, it's like, oh, right, we hear you, we'll set up a meeting at the, at the conference, and maybe it's like, well, no, that one won't happen for a while, and, and yeah, we can't get everybody together, and they don't tell you that somebody from, um, from the, legal, the legal counsel will be there with a recorder, and so you may walk in and be like, oh, I'm not having a conversation with this, and so then that gets delayed, and pretty soon, it's a year, year and a half, and you've you haven't even taken the baby steps that you need to get this resolved. And I've seen, I've had cases where it has been drug out, I believe, intentionally like that, um, because they figure that time they're going to get they're going to get worn out, they're going to get tired of dealing with it, they'll just go away, and then they won't be able to litigate. Ben, if that person reports it to the police, isn't that a difference? Okay. No. So it's a, it's a great question. Only one state in the union has um, uh, clergy sex abuse is a crime. Oh, no. Yep. That's Minnesota is the only state in the union where it's a crime. Yep. And Unless it's a child, right? No, no, no. This is... so So... Minnesota believes that this is a person of authority and a trusted person, like a psychologist, and they take advantage of that relationship and have some sort of a sexual relation with that person, that that is a crime. That is on the statute. The others was like, well, it's two consenting adults. A pastor is not a psychiatrist. 
The pastor's just a pastor. And if it's two consenting adults, that's no crime. And so you could go to the police and the police would be like, all right, what crime am I going to, am I going to charge under? You know, unless it was forced. If it was forced, then you've got assault, you've got battery, you've got rape, um, or maybe all three of those. Um, but that's, yeah, so that's, it's shocking. I know it's just shocking. The condition that there cannot be mutual Right. Because Not. of the power differentiation. Yeah. So they, like a physician and a patient, is okay. what those two. Yeah. Because you're coming to them as a person. Correct. Yeah, very correct. All right. Um, victim becomes often, the victim becomes mm-hmm. re-victimized, and the research bears out that the re-victimization can often be as or more traumatic than the actual original victimization. And I think that is so sad because you're taking someone that is already vulnerable and then re-victimizing them. That is just, that's the hardest word on this whole power to that they're often re-victimized. Then they usually um, become confused because of the strategic manipulation and gaslighting they often receive pressure from congregants and from family members to not talk. Um, and if they do talk, it's usually some version of asking them the details over and over and finding any particular uh, piece that they can. And, yep. and it's like, what were you wearing? <laughs> it's like, well, and also tripping up the story. Yeah. Like, so yeah. To this Mormon podcaster, and she was talking about how Mormons um, get all <sighs> attacking over different things. And she said, like, someone will say, Yeah, I was walking on the street, you know, and blue pair of snick- Snickers and a green coat. And someone's like, no, no, it was a red coat, you know. And the same thing happens with the victim. Mm-hmm. And then their story is uncredible because that one laps of something that they just got confused and then this story becomes dissected and redissected. Then immediately the pressure to forgive starts by the saints. The pressure to forget, the pressure to forget, the pressure to give it all to God or only to God, to pray and only wait for Jesus to return, to make all things right, to cease any legal court action, period. The reasons why victims are re-victimized, and I'm going to read this one slide here. So we don't have time for the clip, but (laughs) Maria, the sound of music, she's standing with the captain, and she says something. I must have done something in my youth or childhood because nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever. And we all took it in. That's just world theory, that good comes from good, bad comes from bad. And guess what? We have to have just world theory to go to bed at night. We believe that we'll be paid tomorrow because we work today. We believe our lights will go on because we paid our electric bill. We believe we'll eat because we have food in the fridge. We believe that good happens to good and bad happens to bad and good is repaid with good and bad. And so when something bad happens, another reason why churches victim blame, it's comfortable. I had a picture of a couch potato. It's comfortable. To enslave people, you have to believe they're three-fifths of a person. They're not Real. Right. That's how you have to dehumanize. Yeah. Okay, the next slide. To, okay, denial is another mechanism. And that's a psychological mechanism which which refuses to recognize, refuses to go there. Refuses. Brother so-and-so would never do that. We had haystacks with him last Friday night. He went to that. The next one, please. Path of least res- Oh, it's already there. Path of least resistance. Where does water go? No. It doesn't go up, right? No. So if we're 
faced with a congregation decision, we're going to likely want to go where? Easiest route. Easiest route. Easiest yeah. route. Yeah. Next one. <laughs> Lack of resources. Sometimes good people don't know what to do. They literally don't know what to do at the end of the day. Sometimes they yeah. don't. And that's to your point. It's like, we can't, this cannot be an option. We have to give them the resources, both in spoken, in training, and maybe. So I've, and I've thought about this for years. Like, maybe there are stair steps to get to deacon. Maybe there are stair steps to get to elder that would include some of this mandatory training. Conferences are mandating by legal teams that anyone in a perceived role of leadership, mm. if you could be perceived as a leader, that you have to have a background. Oh, yeah, we do that in our, our children's divisions or anything. Yeah, if you're helping out anywhere to get that at children. Which is good, but yeah. it doesn't mean you're going to catch everybody. No, I know. you're not. For sure. Right. So, so if it never fell into the legal. Ramification. These people skate under all the time. So it doesn't mean that they're safe. It just is one more positive step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To exactly. Eliminate some. Yeah. So and to teach us yeah. to be able to see and next one. <laughs> so, so to that point, I would recommend that that our church has its own registry, mm-hmm. where a person of of that has been that has been found to be inappropriate gets on the list. And they ought to know that they will get on the list. No. That, right, exactly. We have decided our, our mission with school and daycare is families and children. So we've also decided, which we're telling you, lots of arguing and discussing and praying <laughs> and everything, Bethels can't come to our church, not with uh, anybody, because we have learned people see you there and think you're okay. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we can't come to your house, that minister yeah. to you, <coughs> do other things, but you, you know, this, we can't, you can't, sometimes you can't multitask all ministries. Mm-hmm. And this one goes against the other ones. So you have to choose your ministry. Mm-hmm. And we chose the family yeah. and children since we have a school and a daycare. And so we love you, and we're not against you, and we want to give you support, but you can't come here because that would be hurtful to the people that have been hurt by that. Hmm. And we have parents saying, well, I'm not going to bring my children there. So right there, you just killed that. So, and we don't, we just say that about us, whether children or women, it doesn't matter. And, and not to talk out of school, but there's documented reason for that in that congregation. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Yes. I have a good question. So what's considered, I'm just asking pedophiles, because for instance, uh, high school senior and high school freshman, right? That can be, uh, you know, a tag that somebody gets, you know, from a young age, but is that considered a pedophile? So I think there's nuance. So there is nuance. Yeah. And we've, yeah. we've actually handled, we had something yeah. similar to that in our own congregation. And yes, I think you do have to take it, but um, when they're that close on that line, I mean, that's something you do, but it's a, a different. And legally, so I know this, because I did the press release for a pedophile that was at one of our schools, and I had to go to the court cases, which I loved, 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 and they were different accounts for different ages. So a 14-year-old got higher charges than a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, da-da-da, and more years in prison initially. So they are treated legally um, with more severity, the younger they are. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So right. next, why are victims re-victimized? Again, this is my quest. I want to know why. Why? 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 I want to know why. Another reason that they are re-victimized is cognitive dissonance. So the way the brain works is like a teeter totter. I'm going to tell um, Janice that her home in Shelton, near my mom's, is flooding right now, and it is really flooding. And Janice is going to, her mind is going to say, I have a teeter-totter. I'm going to either believe Cindy, and I'm going to go get my husband in the other room right now, and we're going to call and make sure we have water insurance, and we're going to make sure that the, the shutoff belt is done, and I'm going to do that. Or she's going to say, nah. Her mind's going to go into teeter-totter mode and say, 
oh, no, I don't believe her. And the mind is going to go there really, really fast because the mind doesn't like to be in limbo. The mind, the mind wants to pick one of those really quick, really fast. It doesn't like cognitive business. And I can see she didn't believe me. So that's still there. Well, that's why I actually, with all the things that have gone on the last few years, not in the church, but just in general, I think there actually should be, when somebody has called rape and then comes out that they lied, I think they should get in trouble for it because it hurts the people who really work because then people don't listen. And yeah. And the stat on that is exactly 3 to 10%. There are only 3 to 10% of false falsified accusations. So it's very rare. They do occur if you watch a political debate or something, someone will come up, a supermodel, you know, makes a claim that the politician that was all family-oriented did something. It happens, but they're very rare. Very, very rare. Three to 10% are what the stats bear out. Okay, so we're almost done. Um, Onlookers often feel helpless, and this is because the local pastor is the mayor of that town, and he can secure the crime scene, and they're used to taking direction from him. So they've done studies where people are on an airline, and they're told that the airline, um, that the, the airplane needs to be evacuated immediately, and they will actually just sit there because they're, they're, they don't know how to get up and go. They got on the plane believing the captain and the flight stewardesses would take care of those decisions. And so the pastor's the mayor. And so if the, if you can't get the mayor out, sometimes you decide the mayor is okay, right? And that's another reason why the victim can be re-victimized. At the Propel Conference, we put a special emphasis on reflection. As you listened to Cindy and Ted speak on this difficult issue, what was one big idea for you? How, how can you apply this in your own ministry? And when this episode finishes in another minute or so, I encourage you to pause for five or 10 minutes and just let your mind wander reflecting on what you just heard. Uh, this reflection time can be really powerful. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. You can shoot us an email at podcast at propelconference.org. And please mark your calendar for the next Propel Conference coming back to Vancouver, Washington, April 28 to May 1, 2024. Early bird pricing ends in just a few weeks on March 20. So head over to propelconference.org right now and register a group from your church. Special thanks to Cindy Chamberlain Eastwood and Ted Vanderlyn for speaking at the 2023 Propel Conference and to Pacific Press for sponsoring this episode. This has been the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. The Propel Podcast is sponsored by the North Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. The event recording services were provided by Adventist Learning Community. And the podcast is produced by the crew at Sermon View Evangelism Marketing. I'm Larry Witzel, wishing you God's richest blessing in your evangelistic journey. Please join us again next time for another episode of The Propel Podcast.